Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Place your money line prop or parlay bets with the king of sports books today sign up using code buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet bet mgm and GameSense remind you to play responsibly 21 plus and present in ohio subject to eligibility requirements rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days gambling problem call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with mgm northfield park The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. got to I guess a bit of a roundtable again tonight uh, I want to welcome back to Conspiracy Normal uh, Red Pill Junkie oh good evening and uh, Dave Altman back again hello everyone who you guys heard and our uh, special guest of the evening uh, we've got uh, Paul Heineck hello hello Paul it's great to have you on Conspiracy Normal pleasure yeah, um, I wanted to get into some stuff with you about, and of course, like you are the son of Jay Allen Hynek, who I guess if anybody doesn't know who he was, that I don't, I think that people, if they haven't listened to this, the, to this show and you don't know who Jay Allen Hynek is and shame on you, but uh, I really want to get into some of like your work. And some of the stuff that 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 you have done, and uh, and I want to kind of start off with kind of like your work in like the special effects field, and how you became interested in doing that. Uh, sure. Part of it, you know, my father was involved with Close Encounters of the Third Kind, the movie. So had a, and I met Spielberg during filming, so I had an early taste of of film production. And then my older brother um, is an Oscar-winning visual effects supervisor and actually created what I think is the single most iconic visual effect of all times, which is bullet time in the Matrix. Mm. Um, yeah. so, all right. And all my brothers are engineers, and my father was an astrophysicist. So I grew up in a somewhat technical, scientific household Mm -hmm. um and very comfortable with engineers and technology 
and um, I'm an MBA, so we think we can work in any business and pretty much run it into the ground. So um, I was introduced to a company called Giant Studios back in 2001, and they really were then and for a long time the world leaders in what's called motion capture, where you have sort of those reflective dots on an actor that are picked up by cameras, and their skeletal data is what we call solved or retargeted to another character. So a movie we worked on, or a, a trilogy we worked on in the early 2000s was Lord of the Rings. <laughs> and so we did Gollum, which I think is the first successful integration of a computer graphic character into a live action film. You know, and that came followed shortly on the heels of Jar Jar Binks, which was not a very successful yeah. example of that. Um, <laughs> Do you mean successful uh, as in like notorious, not, pop, not popular or just like the, yeah. the technology wasn't quite there yet? Well, I mean, let, let's set aside George Lucas's apparent blatant racism, but it was just weird. Right. And he had just a very weird, un, uh, you know, unrealistic motion about it. You know, there's right. something in visual effects called um, the, ha the uncanny valley, where yeah. if you create like a digital character that's very close, but not quite there to like photo real, yeah. it, it can create a revulsion in people and Jar Jar Binks had some aspects of being technically proficient but then some aspects of just being horrible so it was like revolting and weird at the same time so <laughs> um, but then you know we worked on uh, we developed what's called now the virtual production pipeline which is really a, a mainstay of many films now uh, we developed that during Lord of the Rings and perfected it during Avatar and Planet of the Apes and The Hobbit and then we sold the company to James Cameron uh, after Avatar. What, what, I, Paul, you might know this. Wasn't one of the first uh, computer-generated like, characters in um, Young Sherlock Holmes? I don't know when that was, but if it's after like 2000, then it's uh, following... It was before. That yeah, was, it was like 1985 yeah, or something I'm like I'm pretty, I'm pretty sure like that that movie had one of the first animated characters ever, computer animated. Yeah, was this yeah, like so, a stained glass... Uh, um, yeah, correct, know, right. Okay, mm -hmm. right. yeah, I don't know that one, but also like, um, what's the one, Bob? Um, uh, there was another one, you know, Howard the Duck. Um, mm -hmm. Another great movie. I think that, that for me, a very successful uh, digital uh, character, you know, was the the dragon in Dragonheart? It's, you know, the one that was with, with oh with yeah, the, Sean Connery. Sean Connery. But here yeah. you don't, you are not dealing with uh, uh, the uncanny valley that Paul mentioned because right. we're talking basically about a dinosaur. And by then, uh, Hollywood has learned that they knew how to create dinosaurs, and dinosaurs for some reason are more believable to the audience than, you know, a, a, a completely digital human being. But one of the challenges you have with the dinosaurs, you got scaling issues when you have something that's so different in size from a human. But one of the advantages of a dinosaur or like Iron Man, which we worked on, is you don't have to worry so much about the facial expressions. With a human, so much yeah. of the cues and emotional information we get are not from the dialogue or the wardrobe. It's these teeny micro gestures that the face makes. Black eyes of, of death, you know, like in Polar Express and other movies, where the eyes were just horrible. Two of my clients together, um, they do Colossus, one of the, from uh, the Deadpool movies. One of them is the stand-in, and the other one is the voice. Oh, cool. 
Yeah, yeah. And it was funny because when the movie came out, you know, how IMDb does the listing of, of who plays, you know, the, the, the actors, they had a big fight because one of, you know, they, they were like, I'm Colossus. No, I am. Well, I was on <laughs> set and I did the voice. You know what I'm saying? Because one's the voice, yeah. one's the body. And we had to go through this big argument <laughs> about who was actually Colossus. Being involved in special effects, Paul, uh, how does that inform uh, the way that you think about uh, reported or supposed uh, video evidence of UAPs and UFOs? Yeah, so that is a good question. So, you know, when I, I, yeah, so for the record, I believe we went to the moon. And so I'm not a moon launch conspiracy theorist. And one of the reasons is I think in the, in the 60s, it was easier to cobble together the rocket technology than it was to make a um, convincing fake with visual effects because they hadn't yet <laughs> evolved that far then. So wow. to me, it sort of falls apart there. Now, you know, people used to say a picture's worth a thousand words. You don't hear that anymore in this age of deep <laughs> fakes, right? Maybe a yeah. thousand pictures are worth a word. So, you know, the industry of visual effects plus the sort of bubbling down of these technologies to an individual level, mm -hmm. you know, much less some kind of state actor or organization, you can make a, a film or a picture that, you know, an expert could not say, oh, that's not right because the compositing or the scale or the lighting isn't right. You can make something that you could simply could not detect to be fake. So mm -hmm. now, you know, we used to look at like films as corroborating evidence, but now it's just like a piece of the puzzle that itself needs to be corroborated with like a, you know, a chain of origin. Uh, yeah, back when I was uh, working in interior design and, uh, you know, with, uh, in an architecture firm, um, I used to work with uh, uh, software like uh, 3D Max, right? Which yeah, uh, allows right. you to have, make, uh, architectural renderings, photorealistic renderings. And obviously the things that I used to do back in, you know, the year 2000 does not compare what one, what one can do right now uh, with, you know, the 10 years of uh, advances. And I remember back in 2010 when there was this video that created a lot of uh, buzz uh, that was supposedly taken in Haiti, you know, showing. I this, remember uh, that. Yep, I know what these, you're talking uh, about. UFOs flying around, which looked amazing, and a yeah. lot of people around say, the "Oh my trees. god!" Yeah, yeah. and uh, eventually the creators came out and said, "No, we we totally faked this, and and this is how we did it." And they showed that uh, their process, and this was the the very first 100% uh, synthetic. Uh, UFO video ever made. I think the first one wasn't that. It was in 1996. It was made in Mexico. The, the building? Using, yeah, there was using actual footage of Mexico City and then they just inserted this wobbly uh, yeah. UFO going around, <laughs> which faked a lot of people, including Whitley Strieber. Well, anybody ever see or remember, and I actually was just asked about this the other day, the alleged Apollo 20 landing with the Mona Lisa? Yeah, I've seen, I've seen those. Uh, I mean, that was allegedly done years ago, you know, but if you think about, you know, yeah, the, t you get the technology, you can tell what was made then 
and compare it to what was made now and we can tell the difference but some stuff that was made in the past was was pretty good all this kind of like being said paul are there any like ufo videos like recently that you could say like well that's that's a little more convincing or that 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 could be real well i i think um you know the navy videos and i'm sure davis talked to you about these um you know because of those other elements such as the navy saying yep it's legit because of eyewitnesses seeing things through high-powered binoculars and gun camera footage um, and radar. I mean, that's about as as good as you get. That's kind of gold standard like that you've got multiple witnesses, multiple different types of technology and a government agency that was sort of forced into releasing these, um, acknowledging their legitimacy and, and saying, oh, by the way, we've seen a lot more. We're afraid for our aviators and we could use a little help in figuring out the reports. I mean, that's that's about as, you know, that may not be capital D, but that's at least lowercase d disclosure in my book. But don't you agree that the videos by themselves, maybe, you know, I'm, I'm taking a, a very uh, drastic position here, but don't you agree that the videos by themselves are kind of worthless? Because let's be honest, those video, that video, uh, the FLIR 1 video was circulating uh, in the internet in 2007. And, and how about anything? Tom DeLong claiming the TR3B video is real? Exactly. Well, but, but the point is that uh, <laughs> the people looked at this grainy, uh, crappy, very short uh, black and white video. They saw the dials and they, they couldn't un- understand what they were seeing in the screen. And nobody said anything. But then it's only after uh, Commander Fravor and the other uh, witnesses uh, came forward and, and they like supported this evidence that the videos became important. But that yeah. brings us back to the idea of really how important is the material by itself. I, I was reading a, an article <clears throat> right. written by, by uh, the former Minister of Defense, uh, 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 you know, researcher Nick Pope, you know, the one, the one who yep. was in charge of the uh, British UFO desk. And he was talking about this uh, piece of evidence, these uh, uh, apparently very amazing photographs that were taken, I think it was in the 90s, by two gentlemen in Scotland, showing what uh, is, was allegedly some kind of like a diamond-shaped object that was escorted or was like... That uh, was the missing eight. photo, correct? Well, apparently there were more than one. And right, but they were there, there stolen were... from the office. They, uh, well, it's more complicated than Not that. Not stolen, yeah. but taken from, by they somebody. Were, well, the, uh, the story goes that uh, the Minister of Defense confiscated the photos right. from, the, from the newspaper after they were printed. And, no, and no, they, they never were printed in the paper. Oh, okay. Uh, my mistake. Yeah. And no, they were yeah, going, sorry. <laughs> they, yeah, they were going to be uh, released uh, on New Year's Eve of this, uh, of this year. And then no, they backed uh, uh, back down from that and said no, they're going now to be released uh, 50 years from now. <laughs> the, the, then they said yeah. that every single person who worked at the newspaper claimed that they had no idea about the story. I literally just watched this on a on a show on Netflix like two days ago again. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's and, why you know, that's why I'm so I, familiar. The the videos in this case, by themselves, they're they are worthless. But it's the it's the corroboration. It's kind of like. If you go back and watch the first season of The Simpsons, 
The animation is horrible. It's just <laughs> awful. But the stories are so good that, you know, that's what supports it. And here, you know, it used to be the video would support the witness testimony. Now it's right. almost gone the other way around. And exactly. Paul is Paul knows Great Kevin point. Day and sp has spent a lot of time with him personally, you know, so that's he's kind of has that bias in it than the, than the public in a way, in a good way, yeah, not a bad way. Exactly. I mean, he's 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 one of the most credible people I've met um, mm -hmm. who you can tell us didn't want this, didn't want this, this series of encounters and is still, you know, trying to come to terms with it to this day. Very emotionally. Mm hmm. Well, honestly, what what military person really wants to have that? Right, man. It's 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 hardly viewed as a fast track to military success to be involved yeah. in a UFO sighting. Right. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Well, I don't know and, about these days, but <laughs> and you know, and they also don't show it very much in like recruiting stuff. You know, like, you know be all you as a hybrid human alien. Right? <laughs> Instead of Uncle Maybe. Sam on the poster, it's a it's a picture of Will Smith with his thumbs up. Although you know that would be pretty cool. I mean, I, I maybe might. that's coming. So, Paul, I want to talk a little bit about your work on uh, virtual reality. Sure. Uh, like I told you before, while we were talking, uh, we're, well, we're we're uh, sorry, I spilled the beans, Paul. Oh, I yeah, actually, I found that on my own. I found a oh, video okay. about where, where Paul was working. Was uh, that was was that a company that you've recently sold? Because this was like from 2016 that I saw that video. Uh, so I've been involved with a bunch of virtual reality companies and, and got into it because with Avatar and the other movies, we were actually using sort of a, a slimmed down version of virtual reality in the production of the content. So we used virtual reality to make non-virtual reality movies. Um, and so I was already familiar with sort of spatial recognition and some of the concepts and technology and, and VR. And after Avatar sort of segued into purer forms of virtual reality and augmented reality, and I'm still active in the field today. And I'm not as interested in virtual reality for entertainment as I am for other applications, most particularly medical. Um, I worked on a project with USC to incorporate virtual reality into their stroke recovery technology. And it's, it's fascinating. So in, the, in this work, you hook up somebody who's had a stroke, and in this case, like their left arm is paralyzed. You put on the VR goggles on them, an EEG to monitor their brain waves, and an EMG to monitor their muscle signals in their arm. And what's happened, at least in this kind of stroke, and I, I'm a French major here, so forgive me if I punch above my weight in terms of technical knowledge, but in this kind of stroke, the muscular system is all intact. The motor cortex in the brain is sending out motor nerve impulses, but the sensory nerve impulses originating in the arm and the fingers are not working. They're not firing. That electrical circuit has been disrupted. And so the brain says, well, look, I'm not going to tell the arm where to go because I don't know where it is now. So with the VR and USC's technology, now you have a situation where we create this whole VR environment and you have a sort of a, a sound vocabulary to establish like a healing background. And then the, the, the goal is to move your virtual arm because your real arm can't move to the target <laughs> position. And you need like a sound vocabulary to indicate that you're getting close. So it goes like, 
And then when you get the arm in the, in the target position, you hear this kind of phase lock and a bird lands on your hand. And what happens is you do that over and over again. And the brain says, hey, I'm still not getting a sensory nerve impulses, but I'm getting some kind of feedback. Let's double down and send out stronger motor nerve impulses. And then by that feedback loop being repeated enough times, it restarts the dormant sensory nerve impulses wow. and function is restored with no drugs, no scalpel, just using the innate plasticity um, in your brain. That sounds like a, a 21st century version of the biofeedback experiments that they were that's performing right. in the 70s. That's right. That's, that's exactly what it is. It's, it's biofeedback with just a little bit more intimacy for the brain. Interesting. Very interesting. And so you've had some, there's been some success using this treatment? Yeah. Yeah. And, and that's across amazing. the board, there, there's, you know, there used to be this notion that you're born with a certain number of brain cells. And if you sniff airplane glue, they're all gone and all that. And now you know, the, the neuroplasticity is much more evident. And there's a, a, a variety of different techniques um, using, call it, you know, feedback, right? Like you said, that mm -hmm. are, are shown to sort of trigger the brain to either create new synapses or to rewire um, existing ones that aren't working. And psychedelic drugs have proven to be very effective in clinical settings for this as well. Right. Yeah. That's, yeah, that's the other, <laughs> that's a whole other like discussion about that. Uh -huh. yeah, that's one, one degree separate from uh, Stephen King's The Lone Mower Man. Well, you mentioned augmented reality um, as well. What do you, what do you see developing in that? I mean, I know we're all familiar with like Pokemon Go, I guess, and yeah. things like that, yeah. but, but do you see anything on the horizon with that and applications that could really help people? Absolutely. You know, and, you know, some people, I mean, uh, just to make be clear what the difference is between virtual and augmented reality, virtual reality, you put on the goggles and you, the analog creature, are transported into a digital environment. Mm -hmm. Augmented reality is the reverse. It's digital elements that come here into our analog environment. So they're, they're, they're the reverse of each other. And now they, over time, they can blend and you call it XR or mixed reality, et cetera. But augmented reality, unless we're going to spend more time in a digital environment, augmented reality has the larger potential uh, because it will just be in our daily lives. So from sort of innocuous examples, like you have glasses or a phone or whatever, some device, you walk down, um, a, a, an aisle in a grocery store or department store, and you can see, you know, more information on the things in front of you. It can give you information about your, um, your own health, a lot of your stats, and sort of like this meta layer of information on top mm -hmm. of what you're seeing in real life. So just like deeper, in, deeper dives into what you're seeing and sort of more context and real-time information, or, you know, tremendous multitasking. You're sitting here, wearing these glasses, you know, working on something, and in the corner of your eye, you're watching the football game. When can they combine that to make some type of, like, uh, augmented or virtual DMT experience? Well, you don't need virtual DMT. Just go for the real thing, baby. <laughs> Hell, yeah. That, what that's you, interesting. What do, think about, what do you think about that, Paul? I mean, something like that. What are your thoughts on DMT and, well, you know, like uh, – 
ayahuasca and all those yeah. types of. Yeah. Uh, I'm a big fan of DMT in particular, psychedelics in general, but DMT in my experience is qualitatively different. And I actually think there's a possibility that the intelligence people report encountering while under the influence of DMT may have a link to the intelligence behind UFOs. Mm -hmm. Okay. So that's very, very key. I mean, that, that's something that, that I believe too. I don't think any, I don't, I think all of us here believe that that's true. Which is why I brought it up. Absolutely. Yeah. So we're, we're not only drinking, we're bathing in the Kool-Aid at this point. Yeah. So Paul, have you, uh, I mean, I, I've never done it, but have you ever done DMT? Have you ever had an experience with it? Yes, I have indeed. Please enlighten us. Did you so, encounter yeah, anything? So, uh, well, I, I, so I want to sort of lay the context. Um, I was talking with a friend of mine, Nova Spivak, who's a stud who crash landed tardigrades on the moon. Oh, nothing. Mm. And um, <laughs> under underachiever. Yeah, he um, he asked me, he knew about my dad, and he asked me, hey, where did your dad think UFOs came from? I said, well, you know, Jacques Vallée and my dad and others started feeling a long time ago that the extraterrestrial hypothesis didn't seem to explain the totality of the overall phenomena and that they would be kind of disappointed if that's all it turned out to be. So they're looking at other things, whether it's interdimensional, time travel, you know, even more, say, exotic uh, provenances. And so my friend Nova said, oh, you should read a book called Alien Information Theory. I said, what? Alien Information Theory? That's like the sexiest book title ever. <laughs> <laughs> so I did. And it's about, uh, I'd already sort of become interested because I'd done a lot of psychedelics before. I was interested in DMT, but that's about DMT and makes the case for how a DMT experience might not be a hallucination brought upon by the most powerful psychedelic known to man, but actually a different sort of configuring right. of your filters of reality. Mm -hmm. uh, then I read The Spirit Molecule uh, by yeah. Rick Strassman and lots, you know, lots of stuff by Terrence McKenna, et cetera. And so I did it. And uh, I had an experience quite similar to others report. And I'm whooshed with these amazing colors. I'm in this, I don't know what you call it, like this realm uh, where I feel and see the fabric of the universe being created. And after I got my sea legs, I said, hey, and I felt intelligence all around me, but it wasn't sort of incorporated into machine elves or anything like that. And I said, yeah. are you what we perceive to be Oh, I, first I said, excuse me, um, are you <laughs> what we perceive to be the intelligence behind UFOs and aliens? And I felt like these thousand mile synapses rumbling and all this. And the answer comes down to me. We can't explain in a way that you would understand. <laughs> and I said, well, I understand. No. So I think I'm onto something here. Um, and then I got whooshed back to earth and I'm trying to reassemble the shards of my ego. So do you think contact with um, these other intelligences uh, increase human potential, which is what a lot of this other stuff that you're interested in is, is about? Yeah. You know, I think one of the things about psychedelics in general is that they, as many people report that they tend to make you feel connected with the universe, whether that makes you feel you'll have life after death or not is almost not even a question. It's just you feel this connection and it just sort of diminishes your feeling of angst around your own personal situation. And it's a very mm -hmm. powerful therapeutic sensation. 
And what's, what's qualitatively different for me with DMT than psilocybin or acid or other drugs is that for me, each time I feel the same intelligence. Whereas the other ones, it's always like hit or miss, it's completely different. Here, I feel the same intelligence that not only felt to me to be like the core elemental you know, entities, but were also actively involved in helping me with sort of emotional healing from trauma that I, I still you know, have after effects from. Mm-hmm. Has there ever, I have a question. Has anybody or, or Paul ever heard, okay, you know, how you say that you asked the intelligence that question, have they ever reacted like they've heard that question before? Oh, that's a any, great question. You know, like, oh, not that again, type, you know, but like, <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, I don't know. I mean, another time I went there and I wanted to pursue that even more. And, you know, that's about as, important a question as as mankind can ask and it's especially relevant and and resonant for my family and i but as soon as i got that question out i myself shot it down and said why are you bringing that cheap ass shit here (laughs) right right so magnificent um (laughs) so yeah i mean i i i got the feeling that there's nothing you can ask them or tell them or inform them that they don't already grok on such a deep level. So, so Paul, when you had this experience, like you did not see any kind of like, it was because people, you know, ayahuasca, they'll see, you know, the, the manted beings, they'll see the grays and this type of thing, but you didn't really see any of that. You just kind of felt, you went into like this kind of weird realm and you felt more of like a presence. Yeah, I felt like this kind of like mostly female presence, but you're right. I did not see any kind of entities walking around, but it was clearly intelligence was permeating on a local level, everything around me. Well, the the female part really is, uh, you hear that a lot, you know, Uh, the feminine is the more, yeah. yeah. Uh, Like the grandmother in ayahuasca, right? Well, I just, you know, and I'm sure that Red Pill and, and you know, Surf and, and Adam have heard this multiple times, kind of the, like the the way that Chris Bledsoe talks about, you know, the, the lady in white and, and, all, and all that, you know, that there's like, whatever this, go ahead. Mm-hmm. No, I was thinking that, but I was also thinking about uh, how Striever, uh, the entity, that is uh, depicted in, in the famous cover of Communion. He says that uh, it's actually a female. And I Very don't know attractive I, female. Uh, he so, equates, well, her, know, equates her to Ishtar. And like, you you must, know, the, yeah. But I don't know if that is the result of, of, of the, the drug always giving you the sensation of dealing with a, 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 a feminine intelligence or if it's just, you know, for a man to have a, a, an experience and dealing with like, like the opposite, you know what I mean? Like, uh, yeah, okay, yeah. I've, I've heard, I've heard experiencers describe, you know, when they, see, when they see the, the mantis beings that they're like a, a, a mother figure as well. Are you saying, uh, are you saying red pill that like it, it completes some kind of perhaps, perhaps Jungian you know, thing. Like, uh, yeah. Yeah. Maybe, maybe a whole. I'm thinking in, in those, those, those kinds of alchemical, yeah, ideas that maybe you, if you're a man, if you're you're dealing with this kind of uh, experiences, maybe you will tend to uh, to to experience a female presence. That that, that is a good question. 
that yeah you know what i've that's that's something i, I don't really uh hear discussed you know whether it, it is that or if it's i mean has anybody ever heard a female experiencer say it was like a father figure to them you know i've never heard anything like that no but that's definitely something that we should yeah. look into because exactly I mean, that's that's um that's a fascinating thing and actually uh before tonight i never had actually really had heard that whole like um that that maternal or paternal aspect to any of this that's absolutely but, but then you have but then you have to think it might also depend on the experiencer what their views are do they feel that or they they've been told that they were created by the beings that could be another part of it there's so many mm. different parts yeah but paula being a creative person in, in, you know, a few different ways, do you, do you feel like um, these experiences or even just uh, interest in the UFO phenomenon uh, contributes to new ideas, um, creativity, those type of things? That's a good question. You know, my father was an astronomer whose side hustle was UFOs. Right. And I could see him, many times were involved in some, you know, daily pedestrian situation, just sort of remove himself and just sort of have like a sort of cosmic, you know, viewpoint on earth. Um, and UFOs would just be that much more sort of attractive. Um, you know, I think for me, it's almost not different. I mean, during the day I do all sorts of like CFO stuff and then I'm rogue UFO guy at night. But I, I, I really don't see that much of a difference between things that I do, whether it's working um, financial projections for a startup or, you know, something in the UFOs. They sort of blend together. Um, yeah. And UFOs, I mean, it's almost if you're if you're not interested in UFOs, it's hard for me to understand that you don't have enough interest to at least form an opinion if you form an opinion and you say, yeah, I haven't seen enough, that's fine. But it's such a tantalizing and important phenomena that I, I just don't, I guess maybe a better answer to your question is, I don't know how to separate anything because I, you yeah. know, we had UFO flying saucer ornaments on the Christmas tree. So they, UFO has been a <laughs> part of the fabric of my life right. since I can remember. And the first well, word I ever yeah. said was moon. So I guess what I'm getting at is kind of like the ideas put forward by Dana Basolka and America Cosmic that there seem to be and there seems to be a tradition of there being people who are uh, who get some kind of divine inspiration from the other or something else or these beings they encounter in psychedelic or UFO visions or all this type of phenomenon. Uh, no, I, I can't really point to anything like that um i i don't know cool i mean the idea that uh creative people scientists and artists get uh you know ideas from another realm is nothing yeah, new it's, it's yeah. something that has existed even before uh you know the the ufo phenomenon uh, yeah absolutely old uh, there's for example a, a very interesting movie that was produced um not too long ago in Brazil. Brazil is very, very big in, in spirituality, right? Uh, and uh, mediumship and, and all that. And there, oh, yeah. I, I, I know it, Red Pill. Absolutely. Yeah. So there's this movie called um, Nosolar, which in Portuguese means our place. 
mm-hmm. and this is based on uh, this channel book and and it's kind of cool it, it depicts uh, like an afterlife that is very very swanky you know very futuristic like uh, they have IMAX they had IMAX in the in the afterlife like 50 years before they 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 beamed the idea to Steve Jobs <laughs> uh, so yeah i don't know the, and this idea that uh, tyler right uh, the, the 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 famous and enigmatic tyler is using his connection to 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 advance our our, our yeah. medical and technological i mean I, I admit that it kind of like uh, bothers me at some level the idea like um, you know why would uh, why would the aliens be interested in reinforcing our the capitalistic system that is kind of like uh, wrecking <laughs> our world you know is that is that the only way that they can find, manage to save us yeah it seems like the the ufo phenomenon you know like this is just a a new iteration of that same idea that would have been more conventionally spiritual things in the past but for people who might be more scientifically technologically minded the ufo phenomenon can serve for someone like Tyler as this source of inspiration or ideas. Mm-hmm. Hey, Redpole, did you were you able to see the new uh, Fatima movie that came out? But that, that, uh, which one? Uh, um, there's a new one, 2020, that oh. has just come out with Harvey Keitel and oh. the the actress who plays Warrior Nun. No, I haven't. Is it? Uh... It was supposed uh-huh. to be a theatrical release, but because of the quarantine and everything, it went straight to um, to video. So you mm. can you can rent it. It's pretty pretty good. Get with the so time, it's the, Altman. It's, it's straight to streaming. That's what it, I was, uh, you know. Right? Is it the story? Well, I don't know how it works in Mexico. Uh, you 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 steal it. <laughs> I mean, he hasn't even seen Blue Book. Yeah, I haven't seen Blue Book. I haven't seen the uh, uh, James Fox the Phenomenon. That's a good. Uh, that's that's a good segue, then, Paul. What was your? I know that were you a consultant on that on that show? And a star. Yeah. How did you feel about it? Because I know that there was there was a lot of controversy about like that. Uh, you know, it wasn't historically exact enough, and all this <laughs> kind of stuff. And right. So uh, my brother Joel and I were consultants on the show and we read all the scripts and gave input. Um, I visited the set quite a lot um, and uh, did a bunch of publicity with the cast and crew. I, I love the show. I think it was great. Um, it's not exactly the show I would have made. And it's an interesting premise to take real people, in this case, my mom and dad, and try to glean their essential cores and then place the sort of authentic core of their characters in dramatized circumstances. Um, you know, to me, the broad strokes of the show are you have a astrophysicist who doesn't believe in UFOs, who comes to accept the phenomena. All the other sort of fine tuning stuff is really just details. So mm-hmm. I thought the show did a, did a great job at showing at like, like close encounters and other pieces that are, are largely fiction of getting people to say, hey, there's a fun adventure here. You know, come for the adventure, stay for their UFO realism. And so I thought the show was great. Um, You know, people that I've talked to, um, most people that like friends and all that, hey, this is cool, this is great. It's at UFO conferences, et cetera, where they say, 
hey, the Gorman dogfight, <laughs> they 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 banked right and not left, like in the show. And this, it's not supposed to be. You know, the creators of the show and the cast are all big, you know, fans of UFO and want to present it in a nice way, but you know, had to do so in a way that could garner ratings. So right. yeah, if it's not entertaining, I'm, I'm people aren't going to watch it. And for what it wanted to do, it did it really well. And it's it's really just uh, UFO people who got you know uh, upset because it wasn't exactly accurate, which I, just was not the point. I think I think you probably had to look at something like that as like a homage to the time period and just kind of leave yeah. it there. Because yeah, like, you I, know, there was a Flatwood monster episode, right? I mean, I know yeah. that I don't think your dad investigated. Yeah. And, you know, things like that, if I'm, you know, in, you know, in, in these works of fiction, but, but, but it's, just, it's just an homage to that time. Yeah. And, you know, when you have a scientist and they, they looked at my dad as a brilliant scientist. Okay, that's great. But they tend and I had to fight back on this in the show that people tend to think of brilliant scientists as like, you know, up there on the autism spectrum and you know, <laughs> just different and rain man there, you know, my dad had an over fondness for puns. He's a warm guy. And, you know, because of time constraints, they'll make a scientist basically know about all science, like flowers in Kentucky or deep ocean currents. And I had to push back sometimes and say, look, my dad simply would not espouse confidently on flowers in Kentucky. He just would not do it. Um, and there's one scene in season one where my mom is in a, in a hardware store getting a, a bomb shelter and the clerk starts mansplaining to her, well, wait till hubby comes back, uh, you know, from out of town and I can help him. And then the line in the, in the finished show is that she says, well, wifey's here now and you'll help her right now. And I got texts from my family saying, that's exactly what Mimi would have said. And I said, yeah, I know. I wrote that line. Hey, <laughs> perfect. Yeah. I'm going to talk a little bit about your dad. And um, I kind of want to start with just his ideas about UFOs and flying saucers and what was going on and how that kind of changed over time for him. Like where, where did he start with it? And where did he end up? Ah, okay. So, um, started off as a astrophysicist who thought flying saucers, as they were called back then, were basically a manifestation of post-war hysteria, uh, and that there was nothing, nothing to see there. So, when he was asked by the Air Force to join one of the, you know, uh, pres or the the projects before Project Blue Book. I think he probably thought it was nothing more than a weekend's worth of work. I really doubt he thought his pesky fourth born son would be talking to you guys some 50, 60 years later about it. Um, and you know, I think he probably was frustrated in the beginning that even though project blue book, as I think you guys know, wasn't really a serious scientific effort. It was more a PR exercise, right. but even with right. resources from the air force and his astrophysics, knowledge that he couldn't explain a lot of cases even after looking into them i think that really rubbed him the wrong way and made him feel i i need i need to not dismiss this i need to take a look at it in more detail and i don't think people say he became a believer but i don't think scientists use the word belief i think he came to accept the weight of the data that there was definitely a legitimate phenomena 
And you know, what do scientists do? They try to classify things. So he came up with close encounters of the first, second, third kind, so that scientists around the world could compare more apples to apples. And I think he'd be very gratified that people have built, you know, umpteen levels more of close encounters for the classification system now. Well, when he first started, of course, he didn't really, like you said, he thought it was like kind of kind of a figment of imagination, the Cold War jitters and all that. But by towards the, I guess, towards the end of his life, he really felt that there was a lot deeper going. And you kind of mentioned this earlier, that it, there was a lot more going on than just like a physical, physical craft, which is yeah, something yeah. that people don't really, um, usually when they talk about your dad, they don't really mention that part. Yeah, and you know, he called his first book on the subject the UFO experience. And and Dave, you know, mentioned the word experiencers because for people who've gone through this kind of episode, the visual sighting of a craft is often not anywhere near the most important takeaway for them. Um, it's something that scientists focus on because that's something that you may have corroboration and you know, some type of evidence evidence for, but it's, it's not really the totality of what happens. Right. And so did he kind of come to the conclusion eventually that, that um, we're dealing with something that may be not physical, but I don't know, in, in a sense, like, you know, interdimensional or something like yeah. that. Yeah, absolutely. Because, you know, there's, there's a variety of issues with extraterrestrial. Yeah. You know, he gave a speech in Canada where he likened, the size of the visible universe to continental Canada. And in that scale, the earth would be less than a speck of microscopic dust in Manitoba. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Place your money line. Prop or parlay bets with the king of sports books today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. Bet MGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus and present in Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1 800 Gambler in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. Our bodies come in different shapes and sizes, so doesn't it make sense that our weight loss plans should too? That's the beauty of Noom. They build a personal plan that factors in dietary restrictions, medical issues, and other personal needs so your plan works for you. Noom doesn't restrict or shame when you want to treat yourself. Their flexible program focuses on progress instead of perfection. You don't have to give up carbs or anything. And with their daily lessons, you can learn something new about your food choices every day. After just a few days of using the app, I learned how to recognize cues for overeating and how to choose the right foods to feel full. Stay focused on what's important to you with Noom's psychology and biology-based approach. Sign up for your trial today at Noom.com. That's N-O-O-M. Dot com and check out Noom's first ever cookbook, The Noom Kitchen, for a hundred healthy and delicious recipes to promote better living. Available to buy now wherever books are sold. Toba. 
So first of all, how would somebody even find us? And then, hmm. it, you know, there's fairly non-trivial issues in getting here. And if they did get here, we have very sensitive instruments that detect objects entering and leaving our atmosphere. I mean, we can spot asteroids, you know, the size of a baseball, 80,000 billion miles away. And they exhibit a lot of comfort with our Earth, gravity, and atmosphere. So plus for me, why would they? I, I don't understand why they would care about us. Um, they don't need our water. They don't need our gold. I don't think they give a rat's ass that we have nuclear capabilities. I just don't see any exceptionalism in our species to make them care. Um, so to me, that makes the extraterrestrial part just doesn't really come close to explaining everything. So like interdimensional other things, and, and it could be a multivariate solution. It could be, you know, manifestations of our collective unconscious. It could be all like a Chinese menu, all of these things together. It's just a, I, I, I'd be surprised if there was one single answer to a really wide ranging phenomena that we sort of lumped together under the UFO rubric. How did he feel about like the contactee movement and later on, like the alien abduction stuff? Because I mean, I noticed that he passed away in 86. So yes. by that time, like, uh, I he, guess... wasn't he good friends with Travis? Uh, I wouldn't say friends. Uh, I've become friends with Travis, but uh, okay, I knew father one of knew you. him in sort of that professional capacity. I just, I, yeah, I remember you telling me, you know, he would come over for dinner and, and stuff like that. Yeah, we had lots of people over for dinner. Um, that was we called that Tuesday night. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> just like tonight. Uh, so, how did he feel about that? About all that? Well, you know, at first he was reluctant um, because you know I, I think my father felt that he had three constituencies that he had to be mindful of. One was the military and the government. The second was mainstream science. And the third was, let's say, UFO believers. Now, try to think of three groups of people who are more different <laughs> than that. And I think he felt he had to occupy that tiny, tiny, tiny sliver of overlap in that weird Venn diagram. And that meant he was displeasing each of them just enough to, to have a balancing act. Now, you know, people ask him, oh, Dr. Heineck, have you ever seen a UFO? That was really not important to him. And it was more important for him to not say, I've seen one, I'm chosen, I'm special, but I'm cataloging the totality of the experience and, you know, let the dust fall where it may. So for him, you know, talking about abductions, well, there's, you can do hypnotic regressions and, and nowadays we talk about implants, but you know, back when my father was alive, there wasn't really that much that a scientist could do with that to help indicate the legitimacy of the phenomena. Plus it was, you know, back then it was just a more sort of scandalous. So it was hard for him to talk about that and keep the tone of a conversation as scientific as he would like. I mean, he must have had some feeling about it considering, you know, when he, he made up the classification scale, I mean, yeah. that's not really an abduction. It's a contact, but he must have believed in, in some of it, obviously, you know, in my no, opinion. I, I'm not saying, I'm not saying he didn't no, no, I, right, it, right. but it's just right. that it was more difficult for him. He, to he considered about. it is what, is well, what absolutely. I mean. He didn't right. dismiss it. I mean, 
you know, someone asked him if he thought the case in Pascagoula was legitimate. And, you know, I know Calvin Parker quite well now, and I think he's another great witness. And my father investigated that case extensively and said, how the hell should I know? I wasn't there, but I feel <laughs> that they believe it happened. That's what a scientist says. Did he think that the frequency was different beginning in the mid-century and that it had anything to do with the the historic moment or the Cold War, or things like that? Um, well, I think, you know, he and Jacques and others have pointed out that UFOs throughout history are sort of interpreted right. through the lens of contemporary culture. Yeah. So it, you know, and we had like the, those sort of like steampunk airship sightings in the 1890s, right? <laughs> right, right. Which are my personal favorites. Um, so I think that's just how we were, how we see things. Whether or not they are in actuality like that, whether we just view them like that, or perhaps whoever's behind it sort of tailor make what, uh, how they appear to our expectations. Co-creation right. in a way. Yeah. So though he was brought into studying it, he looked back and put it in like a historical context that this, this had been going on in the past for a lot longer. Well, I mean, he, he felt that the UFO phenomena was real and I think it'd be hard you'd be hard pressed to hear him or, or any of us indeed right. to say, yeah. And it, it really started with Kenneth Arnold. There was nothing before that. Right? right. So I think he felt that, you know, and there's, there's, you know, there's instances in the Bible, which are very hard to say are not, you know, reports of UFOs. There's this uh, UFO, there's, there's this um, recording that was created by Kufos in the late 1970s in which you can hear, you know, your father, Jalen Hanik, talking about that, talking about uh, UFOs appearing in the Bible and saying, "Yeah, other civil, other cultures have talked that uh, that there are other levels of existence in which there are beings that that tend to communicate right. with us from time to time." And even in the at the end of that recording, which is fascinating, you know, there's even you know uh, interviews with Travis Walton and 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 um, uh, Betty Hill. And by, by the end, yes, they, they consider other possibilities, like uh, not necessarily the ETH of extraterrestrial hypothesis, but ideas of uh, yeah other realms of existence, which to me, uh, I think it very much aligns with uh, the ideas that uh, uh, Heineck and Valet used to discuss with the, within them with themselves in private. You know, I, I, I've read. Uh, all of Valet's uh, published journals, the Forbidden Science Volumes 1 to 4. I read uh, 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 the Close Encounters Man book, which was uh, uh, written right. by uh, Mark O'Connell. Mark, Mark right. O'Connell, exactly. And, and they gave me this impression that uh, Valet and, 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 and Heineck more than you know, the typical scientist idea that, uh, or, or stereotype that we have in the 21st century, they were more like um, um, natural philosophers of the 16th century. To me, they, I, I think of themselves of them as uh, Rosicrucians almost. You know, they were yeah. very interesting in those kinds yeah, they, they of uh, right. philosophical ideas. Mm -hmm. And to me, it's also uh, it's kind of sad because obviously Heineck. Uh, 
wasn't uh, particularly particularly interested in the ETH, and yet when he had to go and, and debate with skeptics like Carl Sagan, Carl Sagan would always uh, go to attack UFOs by belittling the ETH, and that what put Heineken at a disadvantage because okay, I I want to defend UFOs, but I'm so also agreeing with Sagan that the ETH doesn't make any sense. So what mm. I, what do I do? You know, where where do I stand yeah. here to make my case? <laughs> So what what was it like uh, growing up having that UFO dad, and how did it shape your your interest in UFOs and your later interests? You don't know. I mean, however you're brought up, good or bad, is normal until you you know are able to see other experiences right. and compare it to that. Um, and and looking back at it, and now I just um, did a podcast recording with my four siblings this weekend, and um, you know it's interesting to hear somewhat different takes on it, but it was fantastic. You know, my father, like I said, was a scientist first and foremost. So I appreciate having been brought up in a scientific household that had a sort of open mind towards the fringes of science at the same time. Um, and it was very intellectually stimulating. You know, we didn't only have UFO people, but we had all kinds of professors and uh, intellectual sphere. Yeah. And, you know, it, it was, it didn't matter, you know, what religion you were, what kind of car you had. It was just basically, Hey, can you bring some interesting ideas to the table and, and defend them and advance them? Um, and just a relentless curiosity about the world and science that, that I had, you know, deeply instilled in me. And it just shows how much of an open mind that your father had, you know, like even, when he was off the clock, he had, you know, these people became friends to him, you know, the eyewitnesses and the people that had experience, you know, if he, if he had any type of, you know, um, harshness or, or whatever you want to say about, about the topic and about the phenomenon, I mean, that shows you right there that in his mind, something had to be genuine. Otherwise, why would he introduce those types of people to his family and his kids? You know, if, if he thought there was anything bad about it, he would have tried to keep you as far away from it as possible. That's what parents do. Here, here. Yeah, yeah. That's just, you know. Yeah, that makes Oh, oh, I'm sorry. Before I forget, Paul, can you, because I remember you talking about this in San Francisco during your lecture. Can you explain again how you were, age regressed i was gonna to get to that eventually dave <laughs> no but i i I'm, i want to hear it for myself that's why i want to because i i only heard it in the lecture and i really it's i'm it's, curious it's about this me. myself this is uh this yeah. is um, interesting i didn't mean to to, to uh cock block the interview adam i just, no, it was no, on it's, my, it's... i was i've been waiting for it and i want to hear it before we lose time as am i Okay, well then, without further ado, I'll talk about my. <laughs> Never mind. Go ahead. Anything else? Age reversal. Um, I can make the claim that in the history of the world, I have the most documented success in reversing my age. Now you yeah, have to I'm, explain. I'm coming at how. you strong, boys. Yes. Uh, yes. Yeah, Be and explained. okay, so um, there was a medical trial 
run under the aegis of the Stanford Neuroscience Institute that was the first trial ever approved by the FDA to fight disease, to fight aging as a suite of diseases as opposed to a particular disease. Uh, this trial set about to basically regrow the thymus gland. The thymus is located behind your breastplate and is what creates T cells. T cells stands for thymus enabled cells and that's your white blood cells, your immune system. And the problem is once you get old, as soon as, as you turn 20, your thymus gets a little bit smaller every year in, in men and women, healthy, et cetera. So it gets weaker and weaker. And that's, you know, once you get older and older, your, your, your immune system is, is less strong and you're more prone to catch diseases. So I'm a, I'm a big believer or fan of radical life extension. I'm friends with Aubrey de Grey and people in the field. And I decided I wanted to take, you know, um, dramatic action to help my lifespan. So I was speaking at a conference and another guy was speaking, announcing this trial and he's looking for volunteers. And I rushed up to the stage after his presentation. I said, look, do whatever test you want, but I guarantee you, I will be in this trial. And luckily I, I did qualify. And so for one year, four nights a week, among other things, I injected myself with human growth hormone. Jesus. Oh my God. And over the course of that year, we're not talking about uh, adrenochrome, are we? The, the experiment was very successful. <laughs> and not only did it show that it regrew the thymus gland, but that it, as measured by the Horvath clock, which is the gold standard of methylation or epigenetic clocks named after Steve Horvath of UCLA. And, you know, hundreds of people have gone to him with their tests and their trials, because that's the accepted way to show an age reversal. None of them have ever worked until this thymus protocol moved the needle so much that we published an article in Aging Cell Magazine last September showing what I feel is irrefutable evidence that not only did we regrow the thymus gland, but from an overall systemic biologic point of view, turn back the clock on aging. And back to my, my braggadocio claim, uh, that this trial is the only time ever to show that, and I had the best results in the trial. So what I have never asked you was how, like, in how much time do the doctors or scientists think or know how far along the age regression would be? Like, so were you ever told, okay, it's like your, your regression in age was six minutes, a year? Like, yeah. is there a time? Is it measurable? Yeah, yeah. I, I'm 13 years old now. Sh I don't mean mentally. I mean physically. Oh, oh, yeah. Um, I, yeah, I, I gained about four years of life from an overall point of view. Now, this doesn't matter if I get hit by a bus, right? This is just overall yeah. health. But right. um, what I'm told is that I gained about 30 to 40 years from an immune system point of view. Wow. Okay. So, I mean, right. I could walk into a room and lick COVID molecules off a desk and convert them into bioavailable proteins. We, there's our cure. We need to inject Paul Hynek into our blood. <laughs> wow. Now you're getting well, now you're getting doing that. Human growth hormone. Okay. We, well, whenever I hear you tell the story, I've never actually heard, you know, like, or anybody ask you, like, you know, that, that question about how long or how many years, so, you know? So, Paul, did you... Like before you had this treatment done, 
did you like was there like a measurable like i got you got sick more often before and then after you you weren't you didn't get sick with anything yeah it's a good question pretty measurable yeah has it changed how you feel well i mean we've done a bunch of diagnostics using you know the stanford cytoff blood machine and their seven kegel mri and all that and those are what have shown the differences uh, but I, can't, I have to tell you that, I mean, and life is also multivariate, right? It's hard to isolate something, but I haven't noticed any difference. I mean, I haven't gotten, I, I didn't get sick much before. I don't get sick much now. No um, superpowers. I didn't say that. Um, Can you shoot but, webs or walk on ceilings? Yeah, you know, the, the spectrum of superpowers is broad. Let's just leave it at that. So, um, but I, I can't say that I've noticed anything, but this really isn't about energy. It's like you said, getting sick and you know i'm i'm strong like bull that's all i know <laughs> I, I guess in a way not feeling anything is also a good sign because if you're not feeling sick that could be part of it right? yeah and at, at the beginning of the trial we had emails back and forth and some of the guys said hey i feel like i'm 18 years old again <clears throat> and i asked our trial administrator hey is it not working for me he goes no 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 you're in great health. You shouldn't know any difference. This is like fine-tuning the immune system. You you shouldn't well, know, you know, feel like this rush of energy or anything. Yeah, clean living, baby. Apart from psychedelics. So, so when when is this uh, uh, when is this therapy going to be available for the rest of us, uh, mere mortals? For the rest of us, never. <laughs> for the elite, available right now. Go to interveneimmune.com, the -hmm. company for which I am now the CFO. Hey, 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 you can regrow your thymus and have that big bulge in your breastplate like I have right now. You're not St. Germain yet, but uh, definitely uh, that sounds like a good start. That sounds good. <laughs> St. Germain. Redfield, was there any questions that you, that you have? Oh, Tom, uh, like, uh, for example, we were talking about, um, you know, DMT, psychedelics, the, the, the many similarities between... Uh, psychedelic experiences and close encounter experiences. I was wondering if, if, if uh, Dr. Heineck, uh, you know, ever read uh, Terence McKenna's book. So was he interested in, the, in that sort of uh, ideas? Did, did he ever, you know, talk to, to psychonauts to, to try to see if there was something there uh, worth researching? You know, it's a really good question. And, 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 and you mentioned um, sort of, how these fields can overlap. He was very interested in psychic phenomena. And, you know, you mentioned he was a Rosicrucian. So he had a sort of spiritual mm -hmm. leaning, right? That predisposed him yeah. to consider things that maybe a hard boiled scientist may rule out. Um, mm -hmm. I, I, you know, I keep finding out things that I didn't know. Like he had a correspondence with Arthur C. Clarke. I wouldn't be surprised mm -hmm. if something surfaced of something with him and Terrence McKenna or somebody of that ilk because it's a, a viable path, but I don't know offhand of any, but I would be fascinated to see that. And I think he probably would not have taken DMT himself, but I think he would have encouraged me to do so. Wow. Hey, that's cool, Dad. Yeah. I smoked pot with him. Cool. You heard it here. <laughs> Could that be a conspiranormal first? We've got it exclusive. <laughs> I'm ratting yeah. out my dad for his one time. Yeah. There's this passage in, in Forbidden Science of uh, Heineck and Valet going to this party. I think it was in the, in the 70s in New York. 
And yeah, eventually someone uh, took out a joint and everybody partake except Valet. So that was, for me, that was interesting. See, thinking that so uh, he says Valet was was more of a square. No, no, no. Valet in in all if he's in, in all those journals, he's very very right. critical of uh, of psychedelics. He he doesn't really yeah. see any any yeah. any value I've, in it. I think you're, you're right. I've talked with him. Uh, we're we're good friends, and I've talked with him about DMT and my feelings. And he kind of politely poo-pooed me. That's, wow. That's surprising to me. I mean, it, it doesn't surprise me like in a, you know, I guess that, that generation. But it may be because to you, it's he's almost like family and doesn't, maybe there's like a, a safeness he might, you know what I'm talking about in that yeah. way. But in general... You know, like maybe not the the DMT itself, but the experience and the experiences people have, you know, because if it wasn't for, for someone like him, we might not even have this connection. We might not have seen it, in my I opinion. Think the problem he had with psychedelics is that uh, there, and, and he has a point, there is still no way to actually uh, yeah. to prepare the experience in order to properly calibrate it. to for him the idea of yeah shooting your consciousness into hyperspace and 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 meeting all sorts of uh denizens of other realms wasn't really that interesting from a scientific point of view because there was no way to calibrate and correlate the the, the information you received and also i kind of suspect because the another reason why he poo-pooed the psychedelic avenue is that he's the kind of person that he probably gets so, some kind of like non-ordinary form of consciousness, like uh, naturally, you know, like he he said it himself that he was instructed in the, you know, the remote viewing protocols by Ingo Swank himself and that he got very good results. Yep. Right. Uh, right. So to me, that tells me that, you know, this guy doesn't need the chemical, you know, <laughs> the chemical shortcut. You know what I mean? Right. As he gets right, right. it all on after all. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's a good point. And, you know, it's kind of like people I've talked to who say, oh, my Swami or my meditation teacher don't need DMT to get there. Right? Um, and, you know, the other thing about DMT is, as a scientist, how can you represent someone's experience when they're under the influence of the most powerful psychedelic. I mean, it's just almost self-defeating right there. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So any other questions that you had, Rapel? Um, there is one. Uh, uh, have you read uh, Project Beta by Greg Bishop, Paul? No, I, I know Greg, but I've not read that. Right. So, okay. So, but for people who are listening to this, who haven't read it yet, it's uh, uh, Greg wrote this book, which is like uh, telling the story about what happened with uh, Paul Benowitz. Paul Benowitz was this guy, was a, a scientist, electrical engineer, was a contractor for, for the Air Force. And, and in the late 1970s, he believed that he was uh, uh, like tracking signals who, who he believed were coming from like some kind of like extraterrestrial presence and to make a very short uh, long story short 
uh, Richard Doty became involved in that and they started to feeding him this information to like make him believe that he was actually, you know, uh, perceiving alien information coming from, from these uh, hidden underground. And Bill Moore, who was uh, at that time a very important uh, researcher for, uh, he was uh, a member of APRO, was involved in this. He was, uh, later was discovered that he was in cahoots with, with the Air Force and with uh, Afosi and, and uh, Richard Doty. And, and he was like giving uh, Paul Benowitz uh, papers that were faked. And one of the things that appear in the book is uh, this uh, story that was told to Greg by Bill Moore that your father once came to visit uh, Paul Benowitz and he gave Paul, uh, Paul this uh, computer that had been uh, programmed uh, and, and Benowitz thought that the computer will help him like de decipher the uh, extraterrestrial code he was uh, uh, receiving with his instruments. But in reality, according to Bill Moore, the, 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 the computer had been um, uh, programmed by the Air Force in order to, you know, for, uh, further uh, uh, confuse him. So this is a story that's kind of like a rumor to say, did, they, did this happen or not? And, and as far as I can say, nobody, nobody has been able to corroborate it. So I don't know. Have you heard about this? How, how this idea that uh, your father, even after he had uh, you know, resigned from Project Blue Book, have been asked by the Air Force to to be like this errand, uh, just messenger, and give this computer to Paul Benowitz? Yeah, I, I've heard a little bit about that story, but I don't know that much. But I do know that there was an ongoing relationship between my father and the Air Force after the termination of Project Blue Book, which mm -hmm. kind of goes against the popular narrative. But yeah, he did have an ongoing relationship with them. Mm. So it's still within the realm of possibility that maybe they told him, you, look, you, you, we need to do this, you know, to protect they this. might not even have told them why. Can you just project? do this? Or maybe, yeah, yeah. Huh. Exactly. Paul, you had mentioned that uh, your father was a Rosicrucian, am I correct? Yeah, I, I would say maybe he had Rosicrucian leanings. You know, I think there there's elements of, of Rosicrucianism that spoke to him. You know, he was also interested in theosophy and Rudolf Steiner. Um, yes. And um, I actually, I went to University of Pennsylvania for graduate school, and Madam H.P. Blavatsky of the Theosophical Movement lived in a row house right by where my dorm was, and it became oh, a wow. restaurant called The White Dog. And... Oh. If you read the back of the, the menu, it talks about how it got its name. And it's because when Madam H.P. Blavatsky, who was a real character, lived there, she caught gangrene in her left leg. And the doctors told her they would have to amputate it. And she said, fancy that. I'll not have my leg enter the spirit realm before me. And she credited <laughs> sleeping with her white dog as having cured her leg. Well, fascinating. Are you interested in any of that stuff, Paul? Like theosophy you know, and all that. Like, do do you, the Rosicrucianism? Does that are the occult stuff? Does any of that interest you? 
Yeah, yes. There, there's virtually nothing along those lines that doesn't interest me. I don't know that much about any particular thing, but you know, if you look at the universe, we're just coming to understand that light matter and light energy make up what, like five percent of the known universe, which may in turn be one of many universes, which may in turn be running in a simulation. So to say, you know, even black holes, about which we have very imperfect understanding, are part of that five percent that we think we understand mm -hmm. to say that this or that doesn't exist is just impossible. So I, you know, I don't believe in any of the 16,000 gods that have been worshiped on earth, but I do believe it's entirely possible that there's an energy, some kind of frequency throughout the universe. And that has sort of local or, and or quantum connective tissue uh, in ways that mainstream science doesn't readily accept. Um, so, yeah, I mean, but I'm also very careful to believe things I want to be true. Um, you mentioned, um, Red Pill, you mentioned uh, Ingo Swan. I yeah. met Ingo Swan and many others. My father used to take me to ESP conferences. Um, and so, you know, Robert Monroe and Raymond Moody and all sorts of figures involved in, call it fringy occult science, uh, were sort of mainstays of my childhood. So I've been brought up believing that um, so much of this stuff, there's, there's a lot of different ways to find things that are either resonant and or, and are true for you. And I'm still sort of groping my way in the dark to my own particular blend of things that seem to make sense of the universe for me. As we are all are. <laughs> so Paul, I want to ask you a question about in the time that we have remaining uh, about just kind of like the future of UFO research and kind of like the relationship to like the media right now. I mean, you've got just about every time I think I open up Twitter, I see something about like disclosure is coming. And um, how do you feel about like the UFO, the current like uh, UFO research and the current current media environments and like stuff like, um, you know, uh, like the TTSA and all that? Well, these are fascinating days for UFOs. I mean, we're kind of circling back to the, the Navy and Pentagon cases and Another element of that is that they were reported about extensively in the New York Times, which previously would never have deigned to give, you know, credible ink to something as tawdry as UFOs. So, you know, you can make a good case that we're already in a lowercase d disclosure as a process, as opposed to that signal event of a flying saucer having a press conference with Walter Cronkite on the lawn of the White House. Um, He's still alive? No, no. Um, so, you know, the things that are happening now, you know, like this, and they're sort of reluctant, but now, you know, disclosing public stance of the Navy, you can't imagine a different attitude from an official branch of the military than the Navy has, than how it was with the Air Force in my father's day. You know, um, it's very, very different times. I was listening to ESPN, which is the sports radio show, um, three months ago. And they were talking about, one of them was saying, hey, look, whichever teams win the Super Bowl this year, if there is a Super Bowl, well, they need to have an asterisk by their name because of the you know COVID and all that. And the other radio guy talking about football on ESPN blurted out, well, I don't care about that. 
The only thing you need to know about 2020 is that the Pentagon has admitted that UFOs are real. <laughs> so it sort of percolated down to that level of somebody who you doesn't sound like is all that interested in UFOs, who interpreted what he'd heard to mean that the government has officially disclosed that UFOs are real. And it seems to me too that, um, you know, like I said before, all of us here, we know we kind of like we're we don't buy completely into the extraterrestrial hypothesis. And but it seems to me like there that it really is starting to come away, get away from that. That even groups like TTA, TTSA are not, and like Lou Elizondo and those people, they're not specifically saying that this is from another realm they're saying but from another planet they're saying this is probably something that's interdimensional and all this so i found that that's been an, although i don't totally completely trust ttsa like i find it interesting that they are going in that direction yeah are, are they i, I, yeah, I, I, I didn't hear that to, yeah, they've, made, they've, they've made statements like that before uh, bits and pieces you know especially the long who is uh, the guy who loves it, well yeah well Douglas his Moore very religious views you know yeah yeah he's almost saying that the aliens are demons you know can come here right. to, to, to eat our souls like in right Matrix. yeah the, and that yeah. means that the collins you know, elite that, and that, that idea is real. <laughs> of you know ufos and demons you know in, in in general if you back up i'm sure you guys have also been asked as i have are aliens hostile well it's like if you see two dogs interacting and if you have to ask are they fighting or playing? Then you know they're playing. When two dogs are fighting, you know damn well that they're fighting. If aliens were coming here with hostile intent, and I mean open hostility as opposed to lizard hybrid breeding and all that kind of stuff, mm -hmm. we would know it in about 10 seconds. There would be no question as to whether they're hostile. So for me, I guess I'm just overall an optimist, but alien presences, no matter where they're from or when or whatever, are at worst indifferent to us, in my right. belief. Right. Yeah, we're kind of like ants. Yeah, I mean, if you go to an anthill and you're a shitty little kid, you stomp on it. You make your intentions known. And they're like bees, if you think about it. You know, if you go at a bee, it's going to react. But if you ignore it, it's not going to bother you. Yeah, exactly. You know, how... Uh how much of uh, the UFO behavior has to do with our reaction. I haven't even heard of this. Uh, the guy who got uh, sick out of his uh, involvement with the famous uh, bent water case. Boros? Yeah, Boros. Uh, I, I have heard Grant Cameron say, well, you know, he, he's the one who got injured because he's the one who tried to pull out his gun. You know, and even probably fire at it, and that's no, you know that's, that's probably yeah. very speculative. But that's an interesting, that's an interesting avenue of saying that yeah, that's uh, how reactive the phenomenon may be with regards to our behavior. Well, guys, this has been an incredibly fascinating discussion, Paul. I want to thank you for coming on. Um, Thanks very much. This has been a real pleasure to talk to you tonight. Um, could you uh, tell people where they can find you and uh, like your, your web presence? Uh, any any appearances going to happen anytime soon? Uh, yeah, I, I've enjoyed it very much. Thanks for having me. Um, I was Thank supposed you. to be in Italy 
right now, but that got COVID canceled. Um, I don't, you know, I'll be in Bulgaria next September. Um, nice. But, you know, it's hard to make plans before that far out now. Um, I, I have a very anemic social media presence. I've got a- Non-existent. <laughs> yeah, okay. I mean, I have a Twitter account where I post cool shit, but that's about it. Cool. Okay. And uh, let's just go down the line here. Uh, Dave, where people find you? Uh, they can find me at uapexpeditions.org. That's where the UAPX is. And they could find me on Facebook or my Twitter account, which is at Fortean Jedi. Okay. And Red Pill. Well, yeah. yeah. All the usual social media, Twitter, <laughs> Facebook, Instagram, Tumblr, uh, not Tinder. <laughs> and, and Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and they can also find me at uh, the Daily Grail, www.dailygrail.com, in which I, I regularly regularly contribute to and i also have my own uh web page absurdbydesign.com which i use to to promote uh amazing artwork, artwork design thank you yes thanks and and commissions commissions are always welcome and yeah yeah you 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 can find me pretty much everywhere else but you're really missing out if you don't check out red pills tiktoks <laughs> no, I'm not. I'm not on TikTok. I'm not. I'm not much of a of a TikTok challenge kind of guy. Yes, you, you got it. You got to check out those TikToks. All TikToks of our TikToks are TikToks. All of our yeah, yeah. yeah exactly. all of our TikToks. Okay, guys, this has been excellent. Paul, one thank you again for coming on and uh, stay on the line for us, guys. I'm going to close this section out, and we will be back to close out the show on Conspiracy Normal. Welcome back to the show. Welcome back to Good Spirit Normal. Uh, we just really great episode, a little roundtable there. We got to Paul Heineck and Dave Altman and Red Pill Junkie. Yes, and of and, course, uh, uh, Paul is son of Alan Heineck. Yep. From yep. Uh, Project Blue Book and other government studies and yep. uh, lifelong uh, involvement in the uh, UFO field. Probably the most famous UFO investigator of all time. Uh, yeah. Now, I mean, obviously, you know, I grew up, you know, um, with reading about J. Allen Hynek, of course. I mean, yeah. Blue Book and the classification system are like the biggest things everyone knows, it seems. And one of the coolest, yeah, I mean, of course, you know, th he gave the, the name of Close Encounters of the Third Kind, and right. he's actually in the movie. Like, he's, uh, there's a, there's a, at the end of the movie where, like, the aliens have come to Earth. Yeah. And he is, uh, like, there's, you see a shot of this ma older man with the glasses and a beard. That's yeah. Heineck. Uh, Spielberg actually put him in, in the movie. And the... The guy that uh, Francois Truffaut plays, like that character, is, is actually based off of Jacques Vallée. Yeah, yeah. So of Spielberg course. actually really knew, you know, knew his stuff, and and uh, 
which is like really one of the things that's impressive about that movie. And that's probably like one of my favorite movies of all time. Like I think yeah, it's, time it's that I haven't seen it in a, in a lot, but uh, recently, but uh, that's one every time it's on that, uh, that I will watch. And of course, Paul is not a, uh, just in the shadow of his father. Cause he's quite a, quite a large personality himself and is like yeah. all over in all kinds of fields. Um, with life extension and virtual reality and special effects and, and um, finance and like really, really interesting person. And we even got into some like esotericism at the end too. Yeah. Truly, truly a Jack of all trades. I, I was pretty impressed by a lot about what he said. And um, yeah, that was a great episode. I, I was really, really impressed with it. Um just I think in like a string of of really great episodes. Yeah, it was just a it was a great interview, and uh, we would uh, we hope to keep up with them. And it was fun having uh, Dave and Red Pill uh, along with us. Yeah, absolutely. You can tell that Dave and Paul know each other pretty well. A lot of jokes. Okay, uh, well I think that's about it, guys, uh, for this episode, um, episode three thirty six. I can't believe that uh, we're we've gone this far um pretty soon it'll be 350 and pretty soon after that 400 it's crazy well we hope everybody's doing well out there and uh we as usual kind of pitch our patreon if you guys are interested in joining our little community on there we have several posts that go back nearly really four years now that you guys can partake of and we're kind of getting back into the swing of doing weekly episodes again right. we've got some really great recent stuff and if you haven't checked out the the patreon content we did with uh penny royal mm -hmm. um secrets of james shelby downard and we've got some other really outstanding uh past shows like the echo the dolphin shows one and two are some of my personal favorites Yep, and mine as well, uh, which we did. I think we recorded one of those with Rob, and I think we had Luke on there too. That's a that's a blast from the past. <laughs> but uh, yeah, so go check that out, guys. That's at uh, conspiracy at uh, Patreon dot com slash conspiranormal. Uh, we could uh, really use you guys' help. Um, become a Patreon. Uh, we're gonna get back into doing regular episodes on there probably by the time. Maybe I think uh, at the end of this week, there should be another Patreon episode up for you guys where we talk about the some of our more in-depth impressions of our Strange Realities Conference, right? which, by the way, uh, was a good, rather good success. Yeah, and, and uh, we learned a lot from it, and we're going to be experimenting with some uh, stuff we learned from it including some video content and uh, we're going to try to be having regular hangouts uh, as a way to be able to uh, communicate with you guys and uh, give access to some of our, some of our guests. That's something that we're going to do here pretty soon as well. I think we might, we, we may try to do that for Patreons too. So, um, and then just the usual stuff, guys, conspiracy normal podcasts on YouTube, go check that out, subscribe and I think that's about it. So really thank you guys for listening and we will be back next week. I think we may be doing a Halloween episode coming up here pretty soon on Conspiracy.
you would like to help the show, please consider becoming a Patreon at www.patreon.com slash conspiranormal or leave a one-time donation at conspiranormal.com. And please check out our YouTube channel, Conspiranormal Podcast. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Place your money line, prop, or parlay bets with the king of sportsbooks today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. Bet MGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus and present in Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. Saving money on exterior wall lights. Now at Menards. Find your style with Patriot Lighting. Exterior lights enhance the look of your home. Choose from over 50 options from Patriot Lighting. Now through May 19th, get $10 instant savings on a single qualifying purchase of $100 or more on in-stock outdoor wall lights. Check out our entire selection of outdoor lights and see the rest of our deals happening now on Menards.com. Save big. 